This is the Quantum Biology Podcast, where we break down the practical health applications of this emerging science, starting with healthy light habits and going wherever the quantum superhighway takes us. In this episode, Carrie Bennett talks to Dr. Gerald Pollack, and this originally aired on Carrie's podcast, 2% Better. And Carrie's here today to introduce this episode. So Carrie, you're talking to Dr. Pollack about the concept of easy water. So tell us what that is and how it relates to quantum biology. Absolutely. It's my favorite topic and it's everything actually in terms of it's, it's the intersecting component in every aspect of quantum biology. So it's really, really foundational to understand this, I think. Once people understand easy water, which I'll explain in a second, it connects so many dots about light, about nature, about mitochondrial health. So um, easy water is, as Dr. Pollack calls it, it's the fourth phase of water. And I encourage anyone who's really interested in this to read the book that he wrote called The Fourth Phase of Water. Um, it's pretty accessible in, in terms of how these quantum biology books go, because he writes in such a lovely language. And you'll see in this podcast, he's such a lovely human being, right? You know, he's just a gentle soul who really wants to explain this to the world. And he uses such cute cartoons to, to illustrate his book. And so it's not intimidating, right? So I encourage people to explore that if they are, are interested in this. But what easy water is, is, a, is um, a, a term that Dr. Pollock came up with that stands for exclusion zone water. And so we're going to kind of break that down a little bit, right? And so number one, we have to recognize that the water in our bodies is not like water in a glass. So water in a glass is truly in a liquid phase. Now there's some structure to that water, which is a whole different topic, but it's in a liquid phase. And what we found that through research about water in the human body, which 99 out of every 100 molecules in the body is water, right? By molecular count. So that means water in the body is everywhere. And almost all the water in the body takes on a different phase. It's not in its liquid phase like we see it in a glass. It's actually in a fourth phase that's more of a gel, almost like what I would say the consistency of something like jello or honey. It's just a little bit thicker. Um, but still is a liquid, right? But a little bit thicker. And so it actually, so that means everywhere that the body has water, it develops this exclusion zone water. And so this exclusion zone water has some very special properties. Number one, it arranges itself. It, it like orders itself. It goes from H2O in a liquid, which is kind of sloshing around and sloppy, disorganized to a very, a very ordered arrangement of where the H's and the O's form hexagons and they form sheets of ordered hexagons. And so next to every biological surface, all of a sudden H2O, when it encounters this biological hydrophilic water loving surface, it's going to arrange itself into hexagons, layers upon layers upon layers. And when it does that, it actually creates a barrier of penetration to anything that's bigger than the size of a proton. And so that's why it's an exclusion zone because the ordering and the arrangement of the, the H and, H's and the O's into these hexagonal sheets actually prevents things from penetrating close to proteins and membranes and organelles. So it's an exclusion zone. Now, as it structures itself into that fourth phase of exclusion zone water, not only does it exclude things and act as a little bit of a barrier, but as the H's and the O's rearrange themselves into hexagons, they have to change their molecular 
a chemical formula. So instead of being H2O in arrangements, now actually the H's and the O's, if you do chemistry, right? If you do molecular chemistry, math, you count the H's and you count the O's, you're like, oh, wait, that's H3O2. So it's a new molecular configuration for the water. And in order to do that, to make that molecular configuration into these hexagons, water has to kick out a hydrogen. And so just so happens that that water then, that hydrogen lines up right next to the exclusion zone. And a hydrogen, for those of us who can kind of go back to chemistry and look at the periodic table, hydrogen is the most is the simplest element on the periodic table. It's basically just a proton, which is massive compared to the one little electron that's buzzing around it. And so for all intents and purposes, you have a proton zone right next to this exclusion zone. And that exclusion zone, when it kicks out that proton, that hydrogen, it becomes negatively charged. And that is where the magic happens because you have a negative charge next to a proton zone of positive charge. And Dr. Pollock's research has shown that you could you could test basically the electrical potential of that those two areas that it's called charge separation. And you stick a little tiny microelectrode in the negatively charged exclusion zone, a little tiny microelectrode, these look like little needles in the positively charged proton zone, and you light a light bulb. And that can happen then everywhere in the body where this water forms, which as we talked about before, is everywhere. So we're really reframing the energy system of the body. It's not ATP as king anymore. It's ATP plays a supportive role, but water is the true battery of energy that the body draws upon. And so that's how we can get into conversations about light and earthing and how all of these different things, red light therapy, influence this exclusion zone water in our bodies. So it makes that battery of potential energy. It's full of negative charge, which again, we're electrical bodies. That's, we need this negative charge, especially the interior of our cells. Exclusion zone water builds up in our cells and makes that negative charge. And so it's what, you know, everyone's looking for a unifying theory of physics, unifying theory of like, you know, the cosmos and on all scales. For the human body, exclusion zone water is a, a unifying theory to kind of describe everything that's happening in a very simplified way, which is typically what, when you find a unifying theory, it typically simplifies things. And so that's the coolest part, right? If you can understand this easy water and all of the many things it does inside of our bodies for us, for energy, um, for charge, for even communication, it's a game changer. Wow. So um, based on my memory of reading that book, when Dr. Pollock told his mentors and his, the academic institutions where he was working, that he wanted to study water. Everyone was sort of like, what's wrong with you? That's so boring. And it sounds to me like he is, he then went on to redefine how we understand water in the, in the human body. He absolutely did. And there was many actually that kind of came before him that he also gives kudos to on this. And the reason why everyone was kind of frustrated or you know, whenever, whenever a prominent researcher, which he's considered a prominent researcher before he did his water research, um, he, he, whenever it's it fascinating because so many prominent researchers, literally Nobel laureates in the end of their careers, once they, you know, kind of achieve this prestige, they start to study water because it turns out we know nothing about water. We think we do because it's everywhere. It's H2O, very simple molecule. But in terms of its behavior in our bodies and even how it kind of forms and 
and, and, and organizes itself in nature, we don't know a thing. And so um, the unfortunate part about this narrative is that all of these Nobel laureates from um, Luc Montagnier to a potential Nobel laureate, Jacques Benveniste, to even um, Albert Saint-Georges, uh, Fritz Pop, everyone recognized that that water is the key, right? And they started researching it. But that is a barrier to funding. And we can we can always at some point speculate on what why that is. But it turns out that no one wants to fund water research. And I'm just going to put it out there. It's not because water is boring and we don't have anything to learn. It's because water is it. And water is cheap and easy and free. <laughs> and a lot of the strategies we do to support water are cheap and easy and free. Um, and so so it's it's a very interesting, it's a brave thing, I would say, for Dr. Pollock to do, to be studying muscles and, you know, the behavior of pumps and membranes and things like that and be like, oh, dang, it's the water, right? And I got to go, I got to go there. Just like any true researcher, they want to know. And so that's what he did with this fourth phase of water. And he's actually coming out with another book as well that goes into the memory of water. So talk about like, even wooer, right? But like so scientifically written, you know? And so, so it's cool. And I'm so thrilled that we get these brilliant minds like, like Dr. Pollock to, to go down these rabbit holes and dive into this research because from his research and his beautiful explanations that you're going to hear throughout this podcast, we truly get an understanding of how the body operates, right? And it's not what you're, it's not what you're going to read when you pull out a you know, a biochemistry textbook or a human physiology textbook. It's it's not that. It's what he is doing in his research. Um, and sadly, his research lab is, you know, uh, potentially going to lose funding. And so if anyone is listening to this and they want to support that, we I highly encourage it because this is the future. This is the revolution that we need in order to understand the human body and, and the health and how to support the health of the human body. Amazing. Yeah, this is the cutting edge of the cutting edge. And if we want to understand how to stay healthy through the coming years and the onslaught of everything in our environment um, and how to make use of nature to heal ourselves, this is a crucial topic to understand. So Carrie, thank you so much for sharing this interview with us. And we are going to dive into Carrie and the venerable Dr. Gerald Pollack. All right. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the 2% Better Health Podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Bennett. And I am so honored today to have with me Dr. Gerald Pollack. So I would love to, before we get into this wonderful topic of exclusion zone water, Dr. Pollack, I'd love to give you a, at least a better introduction than that. So uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Pollack is, a, gosh, a, someone, your research is something I really looked up to. You're a professor at the University of Washington in bioengineering. Um, you are the founding editor-in-chief, I believe, of the Water Journal which I absolutely love because it is multidisciplinary. And so it takes a topic and we get to look at it from a bunch of different perspectives, which I think is beautiful. Same thing, uh, the founder of the Water Conference. So that's where they also you offer, uh, it, I, the, the conference I guess takes a look at the physics, biology and chemistry of water, same thing. And that's been going on for several years. And I really appreciate the fact that you put a lot of those on YouTube so that people like me can uh, can listen to those talks. And then uh, you have written for two very inspiring books. Um, I'm sure more than that, because I know your your bio, your website lists a ton of books, but two that I have read. One of them that you know got me started was Cells, Gels, and the Engine of Life. And then this one right here, if I may reveal my nerd brain, this is a page turner, the fourth phase of water. I could not put this book down. It is a pleasure to chat with you. 
and I'm very excited to talk about the fourth phase of water and especially ultimately how it applies to health and our own human physiology. So welcome, Dr. Pollack. It's a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you so much. It's, um, it's my pleasure to be here with you. And, Wonderful. Uh, Happy to discuss my favorite topic. <laughs> it's, it has also become one of my favorite to topics. So I really, really appreciate that. So, you know, for those who are just, I guess, diving into this concept, I kind of like to, I'd like to share why water might be different when we think of liquid water in a glass compared to the water that's inside of our cells, inside of our body. So that is what you would consider structured water, ordered water, easy water. So please, Dr. Pollack, what is easy water? How does it form? Oh, okay. Well, well. To the first part of your, as you introduced uh, the issue, it, many many people think that the water inside our body, inside our cells, and we're taught this um, in uh, from the textbooks, is just ordinary liquid water. And it, if that if that were true, uh, there'd be a problem because if you have to cut yourself, the water would come pouring out as it would come pouring out of a faucet, and you'd be awfully dehydrated. <laughs> Uh, uh, fortunately, that's not the case. And the, the water that's inside our body mainly is the water that you were uh, alluding to. We, we call fourth phase or easy structured uh, water. And that water differs uh, from ordinary water in, in that um, it's more like a crystal. Um, it, it's a liquid crystal. And, um, uh, and that's, that's, what, that's what fills the cells and even even beyond the cells in, in inside our body, and and it has the consistency of, of honey, um, and and so it sticks. If you have to cut yourself, uh, it it doesn't come pouring out because it sticks to the solids that are in inside of your of your cell and outside of your cell. So 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 this is not this is not just a, what we're talking about is not just a laboratory curiosity. It's um, it's something that is there in spades. It's all over. Uh, it's not only inside our body, but it it it's also outside our body. And I I I can explain. Do you you the second part of your question? Well, what is this water exactly? How does it form? Um, uh, and um, I'm transposing your question into my my own words. That's I hope that's, that's what you were asking. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So I I guess the it can form several different ways, but the the way the the most obvious way that it forms is um, if you have a if you have a material, let's say a, a block of material, and and that material surface is so called hydrophilic. That means that means uh, if here here's the surface uh, horizontally, and if you drop water on it, the water will spread out. It means the surface is hydrophilic. It loves water, as opposed to, say, uh, Teflon, uh, which is hydrophobic, and you put water and the water beads up. So if you have a hydrophilic surface immersed in water, what happens is when the water meets that surface, the starting with the first molecular layer, that layer meets the surface and undergoes a radical transformation into completely different kind of water. And that's what we, we call easy water. It's, but it's not just the first molecular layer that you know may be of huge interest to chemists, but not to the rest of us. It's not just one layer. Uh, when the first layer forms, um, 
the second layer, uh, the, the, the new layer looks very much like the hydrophilic surface. And the next molecular layer does the same thing. And then the next and the next and the next. And these layers or sheets or what have you uh, together, we typically, we, we find hundreds of thousands, if not sometimes even millions that can line up. So, so it's quite a large amount. And, and from the beginning of that, where the hydrophilic surfaces to the last layer, we call that the fourth phase or exclusion zone, easy, easy to remember. And it's also called exclusion zone because it excludes these, these layers are really tightly packed with one another. And they exhibit the tendency to exclude most every solute that might want to penetrate. Um, and and um, and and that that's where it all starts. So you might, you know, if you're thinking and, and curious, which I think most of your listeners are, uh, you might think, well, it, th this sounds like an awfully difficult task of the water to undergo such a uh, transformation. It's got to require energy, and you 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 can apply. Uh, 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 more formal theorems to demonstrate that it really does require energy because what you're doing is you're taking something that's random, uh, molecules of water, and, and converting them into something that's very well organized. And in order to do that, you need energy. You can't do it without. Uh, my, my favorite analogy is, is your office or your bedroom. You know, you 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 put something down, you put your purse down or you put your headphones down or whatever, and gradually it becomes messier and messier. It takes essentially no energy to do that. But if you want to put it back into shape, you 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 really need to do a bit of work. You need to put in some energy, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, half a day. Uh, and, and so it's the same way to get this water to go from from the a disordered state, uh, that is ordinary liquid water, to the ordered state, which is fourth phase, uh, easy water, you gotta put energy in. And the energy uh, comes, it, it, this was a real surprise to us, we couldn't figure out the answer because you, know, you obviously can't plug it into the receptacle in the wall, you need some source of energy that, 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 that that's, there, we couldn't finally, uh, an undergraduate student was doing an experiment in, uh, in the laboratory and he was doing what he was not supposed to do, uh, although secretly I encouraged the students to do that, try out things, uh, because, you know, the younger they are, uh, the higher the level of curiosity. Uh, as they get older, they become jaded, you know, <laughs> and they sometimes uh, become more conservative, if you will. And you know, they, they don't really give a whole lot of thought to, to um, um, alternative or interesting ideas. Uh, and and, and so, so the student was there and uh, he was working with a typical setup that we use to observe the exclusion zone. And it was a lamp sitting right next to him. He took the lamp and shined it on the chamber and, and he quickly called me in and he said, look at this. And where he was shining the light, uh, the size of this exclusion zone or fourth phase grew immensely. And I suggested to him, well, take it away. So he took it away and it went back to where it was. And um, so that was the clue that we needed to uh, figure out that the energy that for all of this is coming from light. Uh, 
And we did more formal experiments to find out which wavelengths of light were most important. And I, I guess it came as a bit of a surprise. You know, we, we tried a range of wavelengths, uh, starting from the shortest wavelength that was convenient for us in the ultraviolet, increasing wavelength to uh, uh, visible, uh, and, and, and ultimately toward infrared um, uh, energy over a reasonable band. And the ultraviolet did nothing, and the visible light did a little bit. And as we got to the infrared, almost abruptly at, at wavelength of uh, just a little bit beyond red to infrared, but three micrometers wavelength, the effect was enormous. It was practically a thousand times the effect of, say, um, green light or something like this. So, so the energy is coming from infrared light and you know, a lot of people, a lot of people are not so familiar with with infrared light. They know the term infrared, but they don't know, you know, where where, where does this come from? And um, so the first thought is, yeah, you look inside the toaster and you can see it. You know, you you, you push the lever and it's glowing, a beautiful orange, and it feels it feels warm, and and um, and you might express that the energy is, is infrared energy that's coming out, which is almost equivalent to heat, but not not exactly. And so uh, so we found that was it. and it, it's not though it's not that it just comes from the toaster or the oven or such. It's actually all over the place and uh, you can't get rid of it. So if you were if you're to to, um, to take an infrared camera, uh, for example, First, you darken darken your room so that you can't see anything, and your your smartphone camera can't pick up anything. If you were to be able to, if you had an infrared camera uh, uh, that is a camera whose sensor is sensitive not to the visible wavelengths but to the infrared wavelengths, even in complete darkness, you get a beautiful image, uh, which means the energy is there. It it it's coming out. Um, and it's used, of course, by the military at night uh, to to see see where they can't see otherwise. And so the evidence, though, if you can get an image with this infrared camera, it mean, means that any everything is generating uh, uh, or reflecting whatever infrared light, and that infrared light is is reaching us, um, and it's reaching the water. So it means the energy that's required for building this is is there. And particularly inside our bodies, uh, we have an internal source of infrared because we're metabolizing all the time. As we metabolize, we generate heat and heat is essentially equivalent to infrared. And so we, we, we have the source of energy coming not only from outside, but from, from inside. So there's plenty of energy available to do uh, to build those layers that I, I was talking about. Uh, just one more thing, because sure. I know you have questions, and I don't <laughs> want to just rag on. And That's on. okay. That's okay. No, well, you know how it goes. Uh, uh, my favorite topic, I, <laughs> I can talk endlessly. I hear uh, you. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing we found uh, is that, you know, while water is neutral, H2O is neutral, exclusion zone typically had a negative charge. We could measure that with tiny electrodes. Um, and the reason beyond um, where, where those layers built, just beyond that, 
as positive charge. So you've got negative charge in the EZ and positive charge beyond negative, positive, separated. You've got a battery. And the battery is charged or recharged using infrared energy. So if you have a battery, um, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that, hey, wait, if you put two electrodes in, one, connect, one in the negative, one in the positive, you might be able to get electrical energy out of that. And we demonstrated that, uh, that we could do it. We can uh, light a, um, a light bulb, uh, an LED actually, which requires less energy, but in, in principle, we can make it work. And if we put individual cells of this in series, uh, then we could get a higher voltage. And if we put them in parallel, we can get a higher current. So it worked in an entirely conventional way, but in a, an unconventional source of energy, that is the environment. Uh, essentially mediated through water. So uh, all of that is, is, has been exciting for us. And, um, uh, and we just go on and on and find additional properties. But I think I maybe better stop here so oh, you can actually great. ask a question. That's no, no, that's super helpful. I think it's good to get everyone on the same page in terms of what's happening with that exclusion zone water. Um, I, I was guilty, I think, back in undergrad of um, studying molecular biology and biochemistry and really getting into the nitty gritty of, well, you know, this cascade and this pathway. And, you know, I found it fascinating to memorize these. But when I thought about it in a practical sense, it was, it's fascinating to think about, wait a second, how can this energy, how can this occur in real time all at once? This is so many cellular tasks that have to occur all at once. And so it started me to broaden my perspective of, well, what does is, what is everything have in common? And what did we take out? Well, in biochemistry and in anatomy and things, we took out the water. And as soon as you uh, brought it to my attention via your book, that water is everywhere. And mother nature is not stupid, right? Water for energy has worked in other systems previously, plants, bacteria. Uh, and so it only makes sense that we perhaps have retained some of that ability to use generate energy from that exclusion zone water. And I actually, my brain now, I, I believe I've mentioned to you that I, I've read some of Gilbert Ling's stuff. It's challenging, but I've read some of Gilbert Ling's stuff as well. And I am almost of the opinion that Exclusions on water has the potential to be our primary energy source. Uh, well, you know, uh, I, I, I've, I've been hesitant to suggest that in, in any public forum, but, but it could be. If you, if you read Gilbert Ling, uh, I, I don't know, he passed you know, a year ago at age uh, close to 100. He just missed 100. But uh, he had a website. I, I don't know if it still it's exists. It's still up. Yeah, it's still up. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. GilbertLing.org. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and in there, he talks about the usual energy source that we learn about in cell biology, and that is ATP. And, uh, and this, is, this is his point, not my point. I'm just re re reiterating from Gilbert Ling. And yes, his books are a real challenge to, to read, uh, indeed. There's quite a, quite a few of them. And he talks about the original evidence that ATP has a high energy phosphate bond. Uh, this is not his point, he's reviewing. Uh, and, and after that happened, one year later, uh, another group, uh, some prominent chemists uh, said, uh, you know, wait a second, you made a mistake in your arithmetic. And, um, and nobody, to, Gilbert says, nobody has ever addressed that challenge to say, 
yeah, the challenge is, is really valid or no, 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 the challengers have it wrong. But, uh, you know, we've gone on to presume that that our energy comes essentially exclusively from the high energy bond of ATP. And it might exist, but it might not exist. And, um, you know, if it doesn't exist. Well, it's first of all an embarrassment because it's been in the textbooks for so long. On the other hand, um, you know, the energy has got to come from somewhere. So where does it come from? And I, I, I must admit that um, uh, the idea that this electrical energy, this uh, battery like in, in water is a prominent candidate to, uh, to explain that because your body is full of potential energy. And, you know, many of the processes, yeah, uh, just there are actually two kinds of uh, choices that one can make in terms of, of energy supply. It's like a sailboat versus a, a powerboat. And if you really want to get from point A to point B, the sailboat is not the way to get there because if there's no wind, there's no motion. Uh, and uh, and this, this is kind of like the ATP story because if there's a shortage of ATP for whatever reason, you don't have the energy to do what you need to do. But if the energy is potential energy, if it's there all the time, just waiting to be tapped, you know, you just turn the switch and it's there and boom, you got all that energy that you need. This is a smarter way uh, to to drive various processes. So, so philosophically, it kind of makes makes sense to um, to think about about potential energy, and you know, I think we've identified a, poten a potential, if you will, potential source of potential energy, and that is the electrical energy. Mm -hmm. You you separate the charge uh, into minus and plus, and that energy, that battery-like energy, can be can be released and, and used. And then you restore the energy uh, again for the next event. So like if your muscle is contract contracting, I, I spent two or three decades dealing with with a molecular mechanism of muscle contraction. And, and the same story exists there. If you were the designer, so to speak, of, of muscle, you'd probably rather than, than use it depend on a source of energy that you have to drag out. Um, it's better for the energy to be there, potential energy waiting to be used because when the frog needs to catch the fly, see, that energy has got to be there. Uh, you know, you want right. to make sure it's there. And then you restore it during, during the time that it's not necessary for you to be using that energy. Uh, unfortunately, people studying uh, muscle contraction, uh, the water the word water has rarely been invoked. And yet, you know, the muscle, like all the other cells in your body, the muscle cells are roughly two thirds water, uh, less as we begin to get wrinkles on our forehead. But that water, you know, if you, if you convert that volume fraction, uh, two thirds into um, number of molecules. That is, if you line up all the molecules in a in a particular cell, muscle cell, or any cell, and start counting, it turns out that more than ninety nine percent of those molecules are water molecules. So uh, you know, it's hard uh, it's hard to think that ninety nine out of a hundred uh, molecules do really nothing more than serving as, as a bath in which the more important <laughs> molecules bathe. Uh, that's a kind of arrogant statement, Absolutely. I think, to, to dismiss 99% uh, of the molecules as just sort of 
you know, being there, they're, they're important for almost nothing. And I, this is so obviously not the case. And in, 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 you know, the two books that you mentioned, the, the 2001 book, Sales, Gels, and the Engines, well, I deal with exactly with that issue. And, you know, I, I attempted to demonstrate that uh, in half dozen different examples of in, in important critical cells in our body, they, they, they follow the, the paradigm that I, I'm just talking about where the, you know, the energy is, is right there and available and it's used to, um, to, to fuel basically a phase transition, a transition in the water and, and the proteins in order to do the job that needs to mm -hmm. be done. Right. Okay. Again, no, no, I, that's no, it's great. This is this is great information. Um, one thing that I, I think is is fascinating is that we, we do talk a lot about ATP and we talk about mitochondria making ATP. And then it's almost ignored that and it's called a byproduct of ATP production, water is made, right? It's like it's it's again, it's given a backseat. <laughs> but I, I am actually, you know, starting to believe that the water made by the mitochondria and then the heat generated from the mitochondria as well to help structure that water, that might be the, the primary mechanism. So I just another instance where I learned the all the details of the electron transport chain and water was ignored when. It, right in front of me, I can clearly see, in my opinion, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but in my opinion, I think that it's a prime candidate for the energy production in the body. Um, so, okay, so uh, I, like any good nerd, I take a bunch of notes on stuff, right? But what something that really, really uh, I loved to hear was, uh, a, I'm going to kind of paraphrase this from, from the book, but water acts as a machine that transduces an input radiant energy into many kinds of output energy. And I love the fact that you use the word radiant energy and output energy, because that implies that infrared could be a source of that energy, but perhaps I know you have discussed things like earthing and grounding and electron flow, like electron semiconduction. So um, can you just highlight maybe a couple of biological examples of some form of an input radiant energy and then the work that it's done? Yeah, well, radiant energy is just, uh, I, I, and you know, I'm sorry I use that term because, uh, as as a scientist, um, you know, we we think of electromagnetic energy, mm -hmm. which includes light, as radiant energy, radiant, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, maybe because of radiation or or such. Uh, so, I, I, I'm sorry to lend confusion by using the word radiant energy, but you can just strike it and, and substitute light or electromagnetic energy. Sure. Um, you know, we think of light as being only visible light, but physicists think of light as including the entire electromagnetic spectrum whose wavelengths extend uh, down on the shorter end uh, of, uh, and also the longer end of the narrow band that is visible light. It's all radiant energy, it's all light, it's all electromagnetic energy, they're all synonymous. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm sorry, I'm sorry for the confusion. That, that's, that's at the front end and, and the back end is, is work, is doing work. Okay. So, you know, work work can uh, occur in, in various forms. Uh, if, if you've got to move your house, um, um, which I actually needed to do, my home, my home is now under remediation because the mold content is so incredibly mm. high that wow. uh, I had to do it. It's one of the highest that they've re recorded. Uh, and I, I had to move. Um, and um, 
uh, unfortunately, I had wrenched my back a month before uh, the time of moving, and my my students and colleagues were so kind as to come over and do work. So what's work? Well, they 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 took boxes um, and they they lifted uh, uh, well, for example, books. They took books from the bookcase, and first they had to vacuum them, and then they put the books in and then they lifted the books the box of books and put them in a certain place so lifting a weight that's work uh doing uh using electrical energy it's also work it's uh, electrical energy uh powering uh something um and that's another another example of work um it, work is uh if you look in in the dictionary, uh, I haven't done so for a long time, but I think work is defined as as the product of uh, of energy consumption. So you you put energy in, and that energy does something, and it does work uh, of any of various kinds. And I've given a couple of examples. There are probably more. I can't think of them, but probably you can. <laughs> so, is there so? Let's talk a little bit about flow. Uh, I discuss flow a ton with my clients in terms of blood flow and lymphatic flow. And I know that the exclusion zone can play a prominent role in flow, uh, you know, repulsive forces and such. So if you wouldn't mind maybe going into that a little bit, I'd love to love to chat. Uh, yeah, well, there's a lot, a lot to say about that. Sure. Um, uh, and let, let me introduce first by flow in trees. Okay, so so we all we all know that, uh, you know, it rains, the water gets soaked into the ground, the roots pick up the moisture, and somehow they got a job to do. And you know, that job is to take the water from down and and um, somehow get it to rise up to the leaves, which are often up on top. And the you know, the extreme example of that is the redwood tree that's 300, 300 feet tall. Uh, if you if you if you just think about it, about the work that needs to be done, if you'll pardon the expression, work in uh, lifting the water up there, it, it, it's phenomenal. The way you can think about it is um, uh, you, you can take, a, imagine a tube uh, and, and, um, uh, and the tube is, let's uh, um, say, sitting down on the ground and, and you pour it, fill the tube, and let's say it's a 10 foot tube not 300 feet, even a 10-foot tube, you fill it with water, and do you expect the water to want to flow down or up? Well, you know, at the bottom of the tube, uh, actually the weight of, uh, of all of that, and um, it's difficult for that to flow up. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, so you need some kind of mechanism to do it. Now multiply that to get to a 300-foot uh, tube. <laughs> And you can imagine the difficulty that those molecules have of working their way up against that huge pressure uh, sure. that that is is pushing down. And of course, the botanists have recognized that that problem, and you know, suggested a whole bunch of different hypotheses about how the water uh, gets there. And and the bottom line, the answer is is. Uh, I'm giving you an answer before I've given you or suggested to you the mechanism. There's got to be some some pump that mm -hmm. that is 
is pumping it up. And, and I think we identified uh, uh, that, that pump in, in the laboratory. You, you wouldn't think of it as an ordinary pump, but, but I think it is because energy is coming in and work is getting, is, is getting done. And it, it's, it's hydraulic kind of work involves, involves water. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the way we found it, uh, we didn't find it in a tree or the xylem, uh, that is the, the, those vessels that flow up. We found it in the laboratory with originally with a tube made of a strongly hydrophilic material called naphion. We've repeated the same experiment with many different hydrophilic tubes and the result is similar. So it was nothing specific to do with that, that material. And it was noticed by a student, he, uh, put a tube of that material in, in water. Um, and uh, he noticed something that turned out, I think, to be rather, rather, rather phenomenal. Uh, uh, and, and, and to tell me that, I, I can't, the incident is so prone. I'm sitting in my office uh, talking uh, to someone. I don't remember who the person was or in the middle of some conversation. He was probably a very important person, so to speak. I don't remember. And the student, uh, instead of knocking at the door, which the student, if my door is closed, which is rare, the student will knock, you know, and, uh, and be polite, especially students from Asia. This is a Chinese student. Uh, and he comes, uh, he comes without knocking. He, he just pokes his head in and he said, I, I found something really interest, interesting and I, I, I wanted to tell you about it. Interrupting the probably boring <coughs> conversation that I was having with whomever, I don't remember who it was. He said, you know, I put this tube in the water and I was watching it and, and I noticed that, that uh, through the tube, the water kept flowing uh, and it won't stop. And he said, I thought this was interesting. And um, this is a young, young student without a whole lot of, whole lot of experience. And uh, uh, he thought it was interesting, and I thought, well, if he's re- if it if it's really correct his observation, and we we checked, of course, to see to confirm that it was real, it was not some kind of experimental artifact. That is amazing because, as we were talking about the requirement of energy to produce work, uh, this is work to to drive flow uh, through through a tube because the water has viscosity uh, and it takes energy to do it, uh, you see. And so I thought, my goodness, if this is really true, not only is it interesting, but it also tends to confirm the idea that the water is always absorbing energy from the environment because where else is the energy coming from to do this? The tube was laying horizontally in in the tube. So there was no pressure difference between the one end and the other end, uh, you see. so. There's no pressure differential to drive the flow, as would be the case, say, in our uh, large arteries where the heart is is driving with with pressure. So I, so we this this was a, really a landmark finding because we thought after a bit of um, uh, of head head scratching, why if this is really true, and we as I said we confirmed it, it could have enormous application. And one of the applications uh, is, is indeed the, what I mentioned in the trees, uh, because all you need to do is take this mechanism, turn it 90 degrees, uh, and it could drive the flow uh, uh, 
uh, in, in the xylem uh, from the bottom to the top. And then we thought, well, gee, not, not only the, the xylem, but wherever there's flow, always water and a hydrophilic surface. Uh, the mechanism, I, I won't go the, the exact mechanism, I, I need a little diagram to show, but it involves exclusion zones, charge separation, etc. It's not complicated, but it's just a little hard to do it without without a, a diagram. And it, it's described in that fourth phase book that Very you nicely. Yeah. seem to like. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so, this, so, yeah, oh, go ahead, go ahead. So, please. So this, so this is applications and all throughout the body because uh, if, I would imagine any hydrophilic tube or, or I can't, probably can't say any, but a lot of hydrophilic tubes inside of the body would be able to uh, use this flow, basically have this flow mechanism happen. So that it goes from the blood vessels all the way maybe into the microtubules of the cytoskeleton where nutrients, where there's nutrients flowing in and out or where there's fluid flowing in and out. So there's the potential for this to be broadly applicable throughout the whole entire body. Absolutely. And, and we've addressed that um, uh, in re recent experiments. Um, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, lymph. That's another place where where the flow is, is, it's not so clear. It hasn't been so mm -hmm. clear where, you know, what, what's driving the flow. Sure. Also in veins, there is some theory about venous flow and, uh, and, and how it occurs when there's no obvious pressure differential. Some people uh, have given a lot of thought to the sucking mechanism of mm -hmm. the ventricle. That's a, certainly a possibility, but, but in general, yeah, wherever there's flow, uh, this is a, an obvious candidate uh, uh, for the flow, and we went on to test it. We 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 tested it. Um, this is a little story that I <laughs> I, I, I like to tell. Uh, the the end result is uh, that uh, we we've concluded that this is a highly likely possibility in 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 the bloodstream to drive flow uh, together with the heart. Uh, you know, since William Harvey 400 years ago discovered the circulation, everybody thought that the heart was the sole driver uh, of flow. But but indeed, we found that this mechanism uh, that we've been talking about um, applies in the vessels themselves. Um, the vessels are actually little motors that 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 drive the flow. It's not just the heart. And we have manuscript now that we've submitted for uh, publication on, uh, on the subject. And, um, uh, it, I, and I gotta tell you the backstory of this because, because it's so simple and, and so interesting. And, and that is, you know, we all think that once the heart stops, the flow stops. Uh, but over the, the past century or so, there have been uh, a half dozen uh, publications, uh, scientific publications that demonstrate that even when the heart stops, the flow continues. It, it continue, doesn't continue at the same uh, rate. It, it's much lower, uh, but it continues. And so it, if the heart is not driving it, something else needs to be driving it. And, and we, we found indeed that it's this mechanism. It doesn't necessarily mean that the mechanism is highly subsidiary or secondary to the heart because, because the situations in, in, in which this is looked at, the heart, instead of, instead of turning from being a pump to something neutral, it's actually a blockade. If, if it, it's part of the circuit and if it's not pumping, it's just there blocking. And so, 
uh, if it's blocking, then you know any kind of flow that might still exist would would be greatly reduced because of this blockage. Nevertheless, keeps flowing at a lower velocity, and um, and something's got to be driving it. And we think uh, we identified that it's this mechanism that I just been talking about, the same one that drives the water uh, flow up up the trees, is operating not only in my cardiovascular system, but also in yours, um, mm-hmm. probably, I guess. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, still, I'm still kicking, so. <laughs> You're still kicking. Yeah, uh, okay, so you've got. So I, I, got both the, I got both the heart and the, uh, the, the <laughs> IR, the, the uh, easy flow. Um, so what I, what, I, it, what I thought was interesting was, um, you know, if, if nature were to make a pump, right, wouldn't it make sense to put the pump lower in the system? as opposed to, you know, having a a pump up here. And so, and then also the idea that the uh, capillaries are small. uh, And so they're, they're oftentimes smaller than the, uh, the, the red blood, the red blood cells are oftentimes larger, right. Than the actual capillaries themselves. So the cap, the red blood cells have to either get pumped hella hard through the capillaries or almost pulled into the venous system. Um, And so I know that there is also potential, the potential for a charge differential between the arterioles and the venous system that may also drive the red blood cells through the, through the arteries into the vein, into the veins. Yeah. Yeah. This is a real problem. This is actually how we, we got started. Uh, Exactly. The problem you mentioned, it was a trip to Moscow. I went to see my friend, colleague, uh, Vladimir Vyakov, who's a professor of biochemistry at Moscow University. And he quickly introduced me to the, to his, his colleague. Uh, and a colleague had something to say about exactly what you're talking about, about, about the fact that red blood cells in healthy young adults like yourself, uh, 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 the, the, the capillaries are as small as three or so, three or four micrometers, pretty narrow, mm-hmm. but, but the blood cells, the red blood cells that need to get through are twice the diameter. And so, so in order for them to get through, they have to squeeze in some way. And you can see on videos that it's exactly what happens, uh, that they, have to, they squeeze their way through. And if you think about the energy that's required, uh, again, we're back to energy and work. And so mm-hmm. energy uh, is needed to do the work of, of, of doing this to these cells so they can actually scoot their, their, their way through. And this guy calculated the amount of, of energy and uh, he almost smiled when in Russian, which had to be translated, he was telling me, he said, he said, the energy is so big when you think of all those cells that need to go through that, that if, if the heart were responsible, it, the pressure that the heart would need to develop to push those recalcitrant uh, cells through those narrow vessels, uh, you know, like, like, uh, a basketball through through a narrow pipe uh, that it would the pressure would need to be something like a million times the pressure that uh, is is being generated. So, you know, it's an absurd amount. And I I'm quite familiar with with doing calculations of that sort and other sort. It's easy, very easy to make a mistake by a factor of ten or even a hundred, even if it's a mistake of a factor of a thousand. Still. <laughs> It's just too big to to envision. So he concluded that it's it's got to be there's got to be another source of energy that's helping to uh, to drive that through, and that that's what tickled me, you know, immediately because because I'm I'm thinking, well, gee, uh, you know, we just in our laboratory we just found a mechanism where where um, uh, from infrared energy that's coming 
in our bodies, not only from outside, but also from inside, from the metabolic energy. Mm -hmm. uh, there's plenty of energy there to do it. If you have the right kind of transducer, that's something that converts the energy in, 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 into work and we identified it. And so, so the bottom line is, is, uh, is, is that it looks as though um, yeah, in your cardiovascular system, probably mine too, and, uh, and maybe a few others, sure. <laughs> including everybody, it may be that it's not, it's not just the heart that's doing the work. It may be that the vessels are also doing, mm -hmm. doing the work. And, and we don't know, uh, probably maybe the heart is still the dominant one, but it's not so clear. Uh, that still remains to be established. What, how much is the contribution of those vessels? It makes, it makes sense that nature gave us a couple of different mechanisms too for that blood flow. So, I mean, even the red, I know red blood cells moving will generate their own magnetic field too. And, and does that magnetic field have the potential to create a bigger exclusion zone or an appropriately sized exclusion zone inside the vessels themselves? Well, yeah, that's, that's a point that um, I never, never thought of myself. Uh, thank you for, <laughs> for, for that. However, I must say, we're studying magnets now, and uh, mm. what happens, what happens uh, to water in, in in the presence of a magnetic field? And the experiment is 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 really simple, uh, and the, the the result is interesting. And you have a magnet. Let's say this is the North Pole here, and you put it in the water. And in the water, you put little tiny markers. Uh, 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 we use little spheres, microspheres. And they're all over the place. And what happens is we know from numerous experiments that uh, if an exclusion zone builds, let's say from the surface of, of the magnet, it'll push the microspheres out. That's mm -hmm. why it's called exclusion zone because it excludes all kinds of stuff as it, as it grows. So we put the magnet in the water with the uh, microspheres um, and we watch uh, in the microscope to see what happens. And sure enough, the microspheres get excluded for a region of anywhere between a half millimeter and a millimeter over over ten, a few ten, tens of minutes. Just exactly what happens with so many surfaces that we uh, put into the water. So this is uh, incredibly interesting and mm -hmm. it's relevant to the point that you make. Absolutely. Uh, oh, I love yeah. hearing that. That's really cool research. Um, so then another, another thing that I was interested in is I, you know, back to kind of my molecular biology days of enzymes, right? And these bi biochemical reactions and using an enzyme to speed up the reaction. Um, and I'm, I know in your book, you alluded to the potential for proton flow and proton protonicity potentially to speed up a reaction as a catalysis, like a catalytic reaction. And I'm just wondering if you've had any more insight into potentially exclusions on water acting as it's an enzyme, if you will, in various reactions. Well, no more than, than um, uh, I, I've written about as a possibility. I, I know a colleague who is uh, about to launch, uh, an English colleague, about to launch studies in, in that uh, direction. But there's, you know, if you think about it, there's something, something odd or something wrong. Um, uh, if you look at a cell in, in, in the microscope, uh, and, and people have drawn, you know, pictures of what, what goes on. And the first thing that you notice is that it's incredibly crowded, that the cell is is so packed that 
there actually is not that much water in the cell. Uh, it's two thirds by, by volume. Um, but if you think about a typical gel, for example, uh, gels might have uh, 10 times that fraction of water, or even 100 times that fraction of water. So the cell is really crowded with solids. Ain't much room uh, uh, for, for the water in, in, inside the cell. Um, and then, then you imagine enzymes are supposed to speed things up. So, so according to the usual theory, it, um, the enzyme and substrate need to be in contact with one another. And it, but it's so crowded in there that you wonder how on earth can anything flow inside mm -hmm. the cell? Uh, the, the, you know, the, the conduits, I, I think of Amsterdam and canals and such. And, uh, and those canals, those, those conduits are, are, are so narrow that even, even the narrowest of ships can't get through. So, so, and you want to speed things up. You want the cargo to move rapidly through, but there's no way that that's going to happen. And a lot of people have recognized that there's something fundamentally wrong because to speed up, the two have to get together. In order to get together, you need easy flow, but there's no easy flow because it's, there are obstacles in the way. So there needs to be, something else needs to be uh, playing a role. And, you know, it, it might be the protons, which are so small and it can flow through those narrow uh, conduits. Um, or it, it could be something maybe more, more exotic that has to do with, with information that is transmitted mm. in, shall we say, unconventional ways uh, using energy that we don't, we don't really understand. But uh, there's lots of evidence uh, yeah. for something going on that's beyond, beyond what we uh, uh, is ordinarily considered in conventional chemistry and physics. So, so lots of possibilities. That's, Sorry. Oh, no, no, it's fascinating. That's fascinating because I believe you're all, you're uh, alluding to some of the, of uh, Luc Montagnier's research in terms of the DNA and the water having a memory signature of that DNA. And I've, I've also listened to a lot of talks you've given on how water could be a potent quantum computer, if you will, it could have just be, it could have a, the capabilities of a supercomputer in terms of its ability to store memory. And so uh, I, I like that aspect that it makes more sense to me that things are aren't necessarily coordinated as a lock and key mechanism, but instead it's a sharing of energy in potentially what we now consider to be a weird way, but it could very well prove to be that is how human physiology runs. Uh, well, I know you don't have to go there. You don't need to go there. I could go. No, there. no, <laughs> it's not that. I uh, what I'm what I'm thinking is that you're way ahead of me, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. and that maybe maybe the next book you should write instead of me because oh. Uh, oh. Uh, with your your understanding and your creativity, <laughs> you're amazing. <laughs> I just I, well, thank you. I'm honored. I uh, I I get to uh, I get to think out on a limb a lot, you know. So that's I really do uh, appreciate that. Um, so then let's talk a little bit, would you be, is there any, I also kind of have this brain space for exclusion zone water in tumor cells versus in normal cells. Has it ever been observed that the exclusion zone water in or around a cancerous cell is any different? Uh, I missed the middle of your sentence. Uh, oh. There was a technical, but sure. I think I got it. Uh, yeah. And cancerous cells about the water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Indeed. Uh, um, um, so, so, um, uh, how how to how to address this? Um, there there have been experiments that uh, show uh, in the past that the water in cancer cells is less structured 
than ordinary uh, water. And, and it has a lot of implications. I'll mm -hmm. get to that in, in a moment if you uh, remind me, if sure. I, I'd if love I to. go off on tangent <laughs> and, and, and forget, but, but, uh, but yeah. So, uh, but I wanna, I wanna address this in, in a, a way that appeals to me. Sure. Uh, so uh, it's two or three steps. So if you, if you just bear with me. Sure. Uh, okay, first, first thing is that every cell is, has a net negative charge. Uh, if you stick electrodes, you know this, but your sure. listeners may, sure. may not. Yeah. You stick electrodes into a cell and you measure a typical cell in my body, uh, maybe between uh, 50 and 100 millivolts negative. Uh, this is typical. Uh, why is that? If you read the textbook, if you read the textbook, uh, you'll you'll find that it has to do with pumps and channels in the membrane uh, of the cell, and I believe that's not correct uh, for various uh, both experimental and logical uh, reasons, which which I don't need to. I, I don't want to go into. It's too much of a of a of a tangent. Um, but just one one point to make is that if you look at it. If you stick the same electrode into a gel instead of into a cell, you get pretty much the same result, uh, even, even sometimes larger negative electrical potential. But there's no membrane, therefore, no pumps, no channels, no, nothing like that, but the same result. And so it becomes a little bit difficult to, to attribute this negative charge inside the cell or inside the gel in, in, in general to some membrane uh, uh, gadgets. Okay, so where does it come from? Well, there's a very simple explanation where the negative charge comes from, and that is the negatively charged easy water that fills the cell. You know, you take a take a, a supermarket bag and, and you fill it with negative charge and, you know, and close it, and you've got negative charge inside. You stick an electrode in and you read a negativity. So, okay, so if a cell is filled with easy water, you'll get a uh, negative electrical potential, let's say of minus 60, 70, 80 millivolts. If it has less uh, easy fourth phase water, you'll get a smaller magnitude uh, of that negative potential. And indeed, uh, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, where pe when people were sticking these electrodes into cell rather routinely, uh, I even did some experiments myself with that, but uh, uh, if you did stick it into a cancer cell, instead of minus 60 or minus 70, you get minus 10 or minus 20. Wow. Uh, so, wow, <laughs> you know, what does that mean? Well, for me, what it means is that, that it's got less easy water inside the cell, the more ordinary uh, water. And for some reason, the easy water is not getting built up in, inside the cell. And if the easy water is not getting built up in, inside the cell, um, uh, in, in the case of a, a cancer cell, it, the cell looks like it's activated uh, because during activation, the electrical potential of all, <coughs> excuse me, all such cells will go from minus 60 or minus 70 to somewhere around zero. Uh, that is, the water is undergoing a transition from the structured easy fourth phase state to ordinary water, and then it, it goes back again. But in the in the cancer cell, it looks like the cell is perpetually activated. And what do activated cells uh, uh, do? Well, in in the case of, of uh, cells that 
undergo mitosis, it turns on the, uh, the, the splitting, it turns on the division of cells. And that's exactly what cancer cells do. They undergo rapid division. So, so the bottom line is, yes, um, in answer to your, your, mm -hmm. your question, uh, it looks as though there's less uh, structure, you see fourth phase water inside the cancer cell. And it may be, it's entirely possible, nobody studied this, that that very fact that there's a, 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 a diminution of the ordinary amount of easy water inside inside the cell makes it a cancer cell and makes it keep keep dividing. So there might be a very tight and close link sure. between what we've been talking about and cancer. It, That's great. We haven't pursued it, but it's fascinating. I mean, my, so I, it also then would make sense why uh, cancer cells are basically glucose hoarders as they're trying to derive energy from a glucose fuel source because they don't have as much exclusion zone water oh, and then potentially the acidic environment also of the, of the can cancer cells are generally, cancer tumors are, tumor cells are generally more acidic, correct? Are you familiar with Mina Bissell's work at all at UC Berkeley? With whom? Mina, Bissell, uh, Mina Bissell at UC Berkeley. She did. Sorry. Okay, never mind. She did exclude. Uh, she looked at the extracellular matrix with mammary cells. It was very fascinating. So it kind of goes along with this. Um, okay, so then let's. I, I don't. I want to be respective of your time. I'm so. I very much appreciate all of this. Um, lo love chatting with you. Um, I would love to just then, I guess, talk about what you would consider some important practical takeaways. So this is my, my podcast is the Two Percent Better podcast because I find it's not necessarily one gigantic thing, but sometimes it's the accumulation of these little two percent health and improvements that when we look back three, five years from now, we're like, oh, wow, that all really made a difference. And so if you had a couple of 2% around exclusion zone water and the buildup of this easy water inside of us as a, a, a potent health promoter, what recommendations would you give or what do you do personally to build that easy water? Uh, okay. When you were uh, talking about, uh, um, I thought you were headed toward technological kinds of oh, sure. innovations. Oh, sure. Awesome. Anyway, That'd but, be great too. Well, okay. Remind me because. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> if, yeah. Yeah. But, but in terms of health, um, um, so from what we've learned in, in the laboratory, I'm, I'm just projecting from, from that. Uh, um, if you want to retain your health, what you need to do is to be sure that all your cells are filled with a full complement of easy water because without Without that easy water, and I, I gave the example of cancer cells, which I think has less easy water than, than normal cells, you want to make sure that you have a full complement because everything the cell does, it doesn't matter what, what kind of cell, sure. everything, it needs a full uh, uh, cell full of easy water because, because it's the, the, the action of the cell, it, it turns out as described in the, in the Sales gels uh, uh, book. The action of the cell in, involves it, the the so-called the structured water that's in the cell. If you don't have enough of it, it can't it can't function properly, and so it's either pathological or certain or dysfunctional. And so the idea is to to try to restore uh, the amount. And you could do it any any number of uh, simple ways. The first way. The first way is drinking more water because it's the raw material for building easy water. Your body converts uh, what you drink into easy water. And, or the second way is to, uh, to bypass uh, that conversion process 
and drink uh, water that contains a lot of e easy water. And, and, and the easy way to do that, so-called easy, I'm sorry to too easy to forget the difference <laughs> between easy and easy. Uh, so um, easy to do that is to uh, do a so-called juicing where you go out to your backyard and you take the, the uh, uh, freshly grown plants and you basically squeeze them mm -hmm. to get rid of the solids, which would, if you were to eat them, they'd rapidly fill you up and you wouldn't want any more. Squirt out the juice or squeeze out the juice and drink the juice. So what, what are you drinking? Well, you're drinking the water from inside the plant cells. And those are fresh, robust plant cells growing in your, in your backyard. And inside the cells, just like inside your healthy cells, uh, it's filled with easy water. And, and so uh, we actually looked at it and confirmed that indeed it's easy water inside those, those, those cells and then you're drinking easy water. Mm -hmm. So if you drink it, you're basically the easy water will uh, uh, eventually fill cells that are deficient with easy water. It, it may be a bit different from as I'm describing, but, sure. but essentially it's the same. So that's another way. Um, uh, another way. To um, uh, sun's full of infrared energy. Half of it, roughly, is infrared. That's why it feels warm. Uh, and and um, expose yourself to the sun. Uh, and, and this should be building easy in your in your body. Um, uh, where where I live in Seattle, we don't see so much sun in the winter time. When the sun comes out, uh, everybody's happy uh, suddenly because there's a, and. You know, we think this is a purely psychological effect. You're you're being relieved from the confinement of darkness uh, to to um, sunshine, and it may be a, a psychological effect, or uh, and or it might be it might be that the infrared energy is penetrating even your skull uh, into your brain, um, and some 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 wavelengths demonstrably do that. Um, uh, because of technological devices built on that principle. Sure. So it gets into your brain and uh, builds easy water. And, mm -hmm. and because it builds easy water, you feel like you should be feeling, which is good, not depressed or what have you. So I love that. So yeah, that, that's another way. And, and the extreme of that is to uh, immerse yourself in a, a sauna, or as the Finns would say, a sauna. Um, and, I don't know, probably you've had the experience. Uh, yeah, I've had the experience. And I, I tell you that uh, it can be magical. Um, I, I, re, re, <laughs> I, um, I, I remember in, in a store in Finland, I, uh, I arrived, I gave a talk. And they took us to a party in the evening and I was jet lagged, tired. All I wanted to do is to go back to the hotel, get into to bed, go to sleep. Um, uh, and at about 10 p.m. at this social uh, uh, dinner, dancing, whatever, uh, the, the, the organizer stands at the microphone, and I thought for sure he's going to say, okay, now where the buses are loading to go back. And he said, okay, the sauna is now open. We got three different ones you can go to. He described, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I decided, okay, I'll go. 20 minutes later, I felt as though I'd had eight hours of sleep or more. 
I was just raring to go. Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't believe the difference. And, and, and so why, why is this so effective? And why have so many people emulated that uh, mm -hmm. by getting infrared lights and having their own sauna? And I, there are many, many thoughts. And my thought is that it's the infrared energy. It's penetrating your body. It's providing, I mean, the heat is essentially infrared and it's building easy in your cells. And so it's another way of restoring uh, yourself. Um, okay. Um, another one is the food that you, that you eat, or uh, maybe I should say the herbs that you eat. And, we, mm. and many, many, many of them have been known for many, for hundreds, thousands of years, millennia, uh, including back to Ayurvedic times uh, in India. Uh, and, and, you know, we were scratching our heads. Why, why are these substances uh, so health promoting as, as they are? Some of them are, have been touted as being able to solve health problems that total 20 or 30 different, different syndromes. And, you know, my colleagues and I are thinking, can, 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 let's say turmeric, um, can, can that really have, uh, can, can there be 30 turmeric receptors and uh, all over your body? Or is it, is there one effect? Uh, and that one effect is pervasive all over the body. And it didn't take much head scratching before we thought, well, you know, it could be the water because if turmeric happened to build easy water, uh, that would do it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, mm -hmm. And we tested it in the laboratory. We published, we examined a half dozen or now by now more substances that um, are touted as being good for health. Um, uh, besides turmeric, there's uh, basil, holy basil is uh, another one. Uh, we even studied aspirin, which mm. comes from the bark of a, a willow tree. Uh, we studied ghee, uh, you know, clarified butter, which has been really important in, uh, in India and yeah. increasingly outside. And all of those build uh, easy uh, at, at concentrations that we would, we would have ordinarily in our body. They all ended the exclusion zone a bit more easy. It could be that that the impact uh, of these is a very simple explanation, builds easy. Uh, so, okay, I, I, uh, oh yeah, finally, one more uh, about grounding yourself or mm -hmm. earthing yourself. What does that do? Uh, well, I think it, um, um, it's, there are a lot of theories on why it's so effective, but it really does seem to be effective. People, if you walk barefoot on the beach, for example, you feel good and uh, you're connecting yourself to the earth. And I remember as a child uh, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, New York, where there's a beach and in the summertime, everybody heads to the beach. You can't even, you can't even walk from, from the street to the water because <laughs> no places to walk. It's just filled with people. It's crowded. I remember a kid, 10, 11, 12 years old, getting buried by my friends up to here. And um, at the end of the day, they had to, we, we had to go home. They wanted to unbury me. <laughs> and I, I remember to this day, absolutely not wanting to get unburied oh. because it felt so good. Uh, and 
I don't know why I remember it because I don't remember so much that happened at, um, at that age, but I remember that feeling because it was so powerful and so strong being buried. Mm-hmm. And now I understand better. My entire body was connected to the earth. And, and here's the key. Uh, the key is that the earth is not neutral. Uh, it's negatively charged. I began my career uh, as an undergraduate studying electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. And no professor ever told me that at the earth was anything but neutral. You know, you plug that plug in and the third prong, the round one is connected, we thought, to, to zero electrical potential, neutrality ain't so. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I couldn't believe that I was being so misled by uh, all the professors. They themselves didn't didn't know because in this country we we don't know about this, but but in other countries they do. And so I I learned this fact from a Russian colleague, um, Andre Klimov, who was in my laboratory for a while, and he was talking about as he was departing for his flight home, uh, uh, he was telling me about the Earth's electric field. Electric field? I said, Andre, you must be talking about the magnetic field because. I never heard of an electric field. He said, what? You never heard? You don't know that the earth is negative and the, the ionosphere is positive and it's like a capacitor with an electric field that runs. I never heard of such a thing, I said. And Andre said, well, there must be some, something deficient either with you or with your educational system in the, in the US because in Russia, every middle school student knows that the earth is negatively charged. Wow. Shame on me. (laughs) I I had trouble sleeping that night, um, not because of the insult, but because of the potential implication uh, uh, of this, if if true. And I wasn't so sure, uh, because Andre is a creative guy with a lot of creative ideas. And next morning, one of my students brings me the the lectures of the famous uh, uh, or legendary uh, physicist Richard Feynman, the Mm -hmm. Nobel laureate, who Many people consider the Einstein of the second half of, of, of the, the previous century, also a funny guy. Uh, and the three volumes, they're, they're so famous that they're read by, I think they're still read by pretty much every physics graduate student in the U.S. Uh, uh, and volume two, chapter nine, he opens it. The whole chapter deals with the... <laughs> negative electric <laughs> the negative charge of the earth and so you know when you think about that the earth has negative charge the implications of this are uh, enormous and um, I, I i don't want to deviate by talking about it, but my forthcoming book is uh, dealing largely with with that and with the enormous implications of, of that oh um, that's exciting enormous uh, and so as soon as i can get my son who's the artist to finish the illustrations he's He's working on remodeling his home. And so he's got some family pressures to finish. (laughs) (laughs) Understandable. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you got it. So uh, at any rate, so the earth is negative. And so, um, and then we close the loop. Um, So if you connect yourself electrically uh, with the negative earth, what happens is is that it's just an infinite supply of electrons. Mm -hmm. And if you have part of your body, some of your cells, then the charge or easy negatively charged the two are almost synonymous uh, 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 the, the, these negative charges will run into your body and fill mm-hmm. fill those cells and and so if they fill the cells then your cells are restored to um, 
uh, and I, I just should interject that because what I just said may sound a little bit vague, but we found that if you take an electrode and you immerse it in water and pass electrons in, you build easy water. Mm. And so the same thing should be happening inside your cells, inside your body. You connect yourself to a source of negative charge. The electrons come running in quickly sure. Uh, sure. And, and you build easy water. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and there you go. So, so I, I, I've tried to, to list a half dozen different expedients. I think most of which are not too complicated and, and those should, should be uh, beneficial, uh, to, to health, uh, theoretically speaking. And, and also there's a lot of practical experience for pretty much all of what I've, what I've said, um, uh, that suggests that these, these are, you know, uh, mechanism that could indeed operate in, in, in that, in that way. I love that. So yeah. I really appreciate that Dr. Pollock. And I love, uh, I love the fact that grounding under natural sunlight is free, right? Grounding in sunlight is free. And so that is, uh, sounds like a quite a profound way to, I guess, conduct semiconduct electrons and, and then the infrared light from the sun as just like a perfect combination for not only charging us with that exclusion zone, but, you know, filling us with, with filling us with those electrons, uh, creating massive exclusion zones wherever they're needed. And since everything that we've talked about in this podcast, we know that this exclusion zone, we believe relates to health and energy and vitality um, seems to be a pretty profound, but, but simple at the same time. And I love that. Well, thank you. I, I, I like it too. Uh, you know, um, and, um, you'd think that I'd be practicing the uh, same and on occasion now and then I do, but I have to remind, be reminded, for example, to myself to drink enough water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's easy. It's easy to forget <laughs> that, you know, if you've got a busy life, you have no time to pick up the glass and drink the water. Right, right. Everyone's, everyone's, so I, I have one of these grounding maps that I prefer to be outside, but underneath my desk, just in case I need to, you know, conduct electrons. I always try to do that too. Uh, do you take your shoes off? I do uh -huh. my shoes off. Yeah. I'm bare, I'm barefoot almost all the time. So. Okay. You got it. Yeah. Um, do you, do you want to touch on the uh, technological filtration devices or technology at all? Or are you, you happy with how we've given everything? I, I, let me just do that to sure. kind of end because I, uh, I need to be off uh, soon. Uh, uh, I'm actually, I'm, while my house is being remediated, I'm, I'm at a facility, which is actually a retirement facility, about a hundred miles from, uh, from my home and someone oh, wow. offered it for, for free. Um, and so that fixed times for meals. And if you want to get a meal, you can't be late. Okay. <laughs> so, so, um, <laughs> I, it's, it's not that I think the food is so great, but sometimes your stomach hungers for absolutely or something. Yeah. I just, just bear, touch on because these are these are really important and so the first is I guess uh, filtration and um, I, I mentioned that easy water is exclusion zone and it was called that because it's well, first of all EZ is easy to remember at least in this country where it's not EZ but EZ easy to remember but but uh, it's called exclusion zone because because it excludes stuff it excludes almost everything. And it also includes uh, uh, the pharmaceuticals mm. that uh, uh, are polluting our, our waters. And, wow. and so if you could collect this EZ, uh, um, basically it would be water that has been freed of all of these, these contaminants. Um, and, and for us, this is an exciting development. Um, uh, 
and we've we've been we've been working on it. There are technological obstacles that we that remain to be solved that have not yet uh, been been solved, but we're uh, in indeed uh, getting there. And and an offshoot of that, uh, maybe it's more than just an offshoot, is the poss- the possibility of separating salt from the water. Mm. You might think of salt as a contaminant. <laughs> Um, uh, and so the idea is that uh, you can have a, a device which does a separation and it, it's not complicated to envision various geometries that, that can do that where, from which you can then extract the uh, easy water. But it turns out the easy water excludes salt. And, and so we've just barely begun uh, the, the idea of taking ocean water in uh, and and trying to separate the salt uh, from the water so that you can not only get salt-free water to drink, wow. but that salt-free water should be easy water, which is good for health. So it's a wow. double whammy. And, and since getting easy or building easy comes from environmental energy, uh, it's always there. Um, you don't need to put in extra energy, uh, uh, like, for example, from from um, uh, petroleum, uh, from uh, oil, uh, mm-hmm. where it is quite abundant in the Arabic uh, countries and the Middle East, they they can afford the reverse osmosis, which accomplishes that, but uh, it's very expensive in terms of the energy that you need. Well, here, the energy comes from the sun. It's free. It's free for the taking. So mm-hmm. in theory, we're not there yet, but in theory, it ought to be able to, uh, you ought to be able to separate the salt from the ocean water by virtue of the energy of the sun, which is abundant in those dry areas, and get drinking water, which is not abundant in, in, in those areas. So, so for us, this is a, um, you know, ordinary filtration is interesting. Getting salt separated is even more interesting mm. uh, than that. Uh, that's two. And there's a third one, and that is, that was implicit in what we were talking about is, getting electricity uh, from water. I mentioned earlier on that, um, you know, separating the water into the negatively charged EZ and the positive charge beyond, uh, you're separating charge and creating a battery. Mm -hmm. And you just take two electrodes and connect them and you can get electrical energy out of that. So at least in theory, in the laboratory, it's possible to get electrical energy merely um, from water. Um, it's water and sunlight. It's wow. as natural as you can mm-hmm. as you can get, and you can exploit that uh, under the right circumstances. It's totally renewable, uh, and and uh, and use it. And so we've we've demonstrated that in the laboratory, but going from a laboratory uh, demonstration uh, to something practical is a real challenge. It's in, in the trade, it's known as uh, crossing the valley of death uh, because, <laughs> because uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of ideas can't cross that, that valley to the, uh, uh, the other side where it's actually something that's viable uh, for practical use. Um, so we, we, we have that in mind. So I, I, there are more, but th- those are the, the three uh, sort of, you know, ma- major um, uh, technological uh, achievements or 
objectives, I should say, not achievements, because we're not there yet. Um, and you know, we've discovered I'm not a sort of a business oriented. These are mostly intended for humanity, not for mm -hmm. uh, for for business. But there have to be some business aspects because in in order to do the the technological development, you need money mm -hmm. um, to hire the people to do it. And so, so that that that's an obstacle. Uh, so uh, you you do have a uh, I, I believe it's a an organization that that or I don't a charity. I, I don't want to misspeak, but I do believe that you uh, have a venture uh, research. Institute. Yeah, well, I, yeah. So, so I should I should clarify. We we have an institute. It's called the Institute for Venture Science, mm. and I, I I tell you just a few words about that. But let me start by saying this is not an institute that's designed to support my own personal laboratory or any kind of developments because uh, you, you know I'm the executive director of this organization mm. and. Sure. Uh, and it's a, it's a charity, basically. It's classified as a charity. And it, it would be completely unethical uh, to take money from that and, and direct it my way. So, so in fact, I'm, if anything, excluded from, from profiting from that organization. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad you mentioned it because this is an exciting uh, um, venture, Absolutely. if you will. Um, and, and the idea is, uh, is, is to use this money uh, uh, private money, um, uh, governments won't support this, money to support uh, scientific endeavors that challenge uh, uh, those notions of outlive their usefulness. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're a relatively new organization and we've vetted more than 200 pre-proposals down to a dozen proposals from which we've selected five projects or five groups of people in different scientific areas where if the money were available uh, for these people um, um, and if their hypotheses turned out to be to be valid uh, it would shake the earth wow. absolutely and these people have great difficulty getting money otherwise because as you know the challenge in the mainstream um, it comes with consequences and one consequence is to not get funding very, very easily. Um, and so we provide a vehicle for those people. But just one last little twist. Um, you know, if you were, if, if you were the person applying and, uh, and you were suggesting, for example, that uh, the earth is round, uh, but everybody knows the earth is flat and, uh, at this time, um, you know, and, and you were lucky enough to get money, uh, uh, from any organization, you probably wouldn't because you, the people reviewing your application for funding uh, are the ones who would feel threatened by your revolutionary idea. Mm -hmm. Flat Earth people, they don't, they don't like to be uh, uh, proven wrong by round Earth uh, folks. So, you know, you're not like, but if you do get your money, um, then, um, and and you, you go on to produce some new evidence besides the satellite photos, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, they're gonna stand up and say, oh, Carrie, uh, she's a crackpot. Don't pay any attention to her. And then, well, what do you do? You stand up and wave a flag and say, no, I, I'm, no I'm not a crackpot. Pay attention, you know, you're, mm -hmm, right. you're done, mm -hmm. essentially. And then all over the internet, uh, uh, oh yeah, Carrie, she's, she's just, 
don't pay any attention to her. She's nuts and she's a crackpot. So this is inevitable. It's not uh, sure. plausible. It's inevitable. And so our institute recognizes that. And if we fund you, our, our objective is to fund up to a dozen other groups around the world who share your vision uh, that, you know, the earth might well be round. And then what happens is, is in, in this case, at next year's at the annual conference of the Shape of the Earth Society, suddenly a dozen groups are reporting, hey, you know, um, using a dozen different methods independently. Brilliant. Uh, mm -hmm. The earth is round. And then the, uh, the revolution comes. That's and, brilliant. Well, thank you. I, uh, I, I, we're, we're, you know, we're now looking for the private funding um, sure. that we need to support because these endeavors are, are not cheap. And I know there are a lot of people who have done well in their careers and who would like to give back in, in a meaningful way, especially now with, with so much emphasis on disinformation. It's almost unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, it, it, this finds its way into the scientific arena. It's so important to deal with with truth and mm -hmm. and sometimes you know the textbooks teach us something that is simply not true um, and it's difficult for scientists to challenge uh, these and we are making it easy for scientists to challenge and to create scientific revolutions of which there have been so few if you if you think about it sure. you know you may be looking at the internet and reading the New York Times or Washington Post or whatever. And um, it's really hard to, to identify uh, scientific breakthrough uh, revolutions. I, I don't mean technological revolutions, you know, like my laptop computer that I'm mm -hmm. using and Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, they're technological revolutions. Uh, they're amazing, but they're technological, not scientific. Uh, by scientific, I mean, I mean, uh, uh, the genetic code sure. that was the sure. mid fifties, the splitting of the atom, nineteen uh, forties. Uh, you know that's we're we're dealing with almost a century ago, more than a half century ago, and it's really hard. If I were to ask you to to name uh, a scientific revolution uh, of equal importance that's occurred during the past say thirty years or so despite huge amounts of monies being put into science, it's really hard to identify ones that have changed everything, changed sure. the entire life. We need them. Uh, scientific revolutions, scientific inevitably lead to uh, technologies that can help solve the problems of, of, of the world. And, and uh, those are desperately needed uh, right now. Uh, and so anybody who's interested, um, uh, the URL is easy to remember. Uh, it's IV, like, you know, intravenous, ivscience.org. Uh, .com will get you there too, I think, but .org, ivscience.org. Take a look. Uh, I will. I'll make sure I link it too. I, I really, really appreciate that. I feel like breakthroughs don't happen in the middle, they happen on the fringe and people need to be feel comfortable getting to the fringe and, uh, and exploring, so. Absolutely, you hit the nail on the head, Gary. You're amazing. <laughs> you, you're amazing, Dr. Pollock. I so appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, thank you. This has been wonderful. And again, I, I really appreciate you. Okay, it's been my pleasure. All right. Um, okay, bye -bye. take care. Take care, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.
This has been the Quantum Biology Collective Podcast. To find a practitioner who practices from this point of view, visit our directory at quantumbiologycollective.org. If you are a practitioner, definitely take a look at the Applied Quantum Biology Certification, a six-week study of the science of the new human health paradigm and its practical application with your patients and clients. We also love to feature graduates of the program on this very podcast. Until next time, the QBC.